Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with the timeless Professor Akhil Amar. Hello, Akhil. Hey, Andy. Um, and today, although we're not, alas, in the same room together, I'm actually in a different room than I usually am. I'm in Washington, D.C., teaching actually a group of extraordinary college kids from across the country, teaching them from the new book, The Words That Made Us. I was there last week, and I think that uh, something I saw last week is relevant to our podcast today. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, the reason that I referred to you as timeless is because uh, this episode is going to take us back to the, the past of uh, Professor Amar, um, at which time he predicts the future, um, and then we're going to talk about that future, which is now our present, um, and what's going on now in terms of impact that uh, Akil is having. And then we're going to use that retrospective and it's what happened to it to show us now what we can look at in our future. So this episode is all about time. So um, think of me as Michael J. Fox, if you will, ba Back to the Future, or actually as the professor, Christopher Lloyd, and in the small world department, I should mention, since Andy has, has mentioned that I was referred to in the West Wing way back when, and I was feeling very stuffed with myself. Oh, I got referred to in the West Wing. And then three weeks later, they actually had the actor who, who, who played the professor in Back to the Future, uh, Christopher Lloyd, actually on screen playing my former teaching assistant, Larry Lessig. And not just, you know, one brief mention, but he was on for 20, 25 minutes, and, and President Bartlett had read his, that is Larry Lessig's book, The Future of Ideas, or something like that. So, so take that, Akil. You were, you were feeling a little too stuffed with yourself. You got one mention. My dear friend, former teaching assistant, uh, Larry Lessig, got 30 minutes <laughs> on well, screen. You know, I've never met uh, Professor Lessig. Um, but you mention him from time to time in our discussions. And whenever you do, all I can do is picture Christopher Lloyd. So, <laughs> Larry is actually much younger and much better looking. Okay. Uh, that's a big uh, shout out to, to my friend Larry. Okay. But, uh, you know, I mentioned today's moment counts. And in the, uh, in the realm of news, you know, a couple things have been going on this week that, have, that uh, concern uh, your activities. And one of them was an interview that you did recently, speaking of time, with some very important uh, Supreme Court justices. Why don't you tell us a little about it? It was the first ever joint interview with Sonia Sotomayor and Amy Coney Barrett, the third woman in American history to sit on the Supreme Court and the fifth. And they did a joint interview, which they had never done before, with me, they were both at the U.S. Supreme Court. It was the first, together, in the same room, it was the first time they had actually been in the same room together, I believe, since the leaking of the Dobbs draft. So this was a couple months back, and the Dobbs draft was leaked, and there was a regular weekly conference uh, at the court, and they were both there for that. And just uh, by happenstance, that was the day that had been scheduled long in advance for the interview. It was by Zoom. Uh, from my point of view, I was in New Haven. They were to repeat in Washington, D.C., sitting next to each other. And it's available for the audience on uh, YouTube. As the audience knows, um, I'm a Democrat. I self-identify 
as a liberal. This was done under the auspices of an uh, institute affiliated with the memory of Ronald Reagan, a great conservative Amer uh, American, great Republican, although he started out as a New Deal Democrat early in his life. And oh, we talk about a lot of things. Civic education centrally, the jury, Justice Sotomayor tells a great story about actually how she's not only presided over a real jury trial, she was a trial judge for, for many years, but has done a mock trial jury experience for youngsters involving actually, where they're the jury um, in the case of the people versus Goldilocks, who ate porridge and slept in other people's beds, ate other people's porridge, slept in other people's beds, broke their chair, so there's a, a criminal a fictional criminal case against Goldilocks, and the jury has to decide, and she tells a, a wonderful story about that. But more generally, you will see, see with your own eyes a little bit about the interpersonal dynamics between these two. Remember, one was on one side of Dobbs, and one was on the other side of Dobbs, and they know that, of course, when they're, and, and, uh, when they're meeting together. It's a very interesting conversation. I'm kind of the Phil Donahue of the event, and at the end of the event, I, I kind of asked, I asked some gusty questions. I actually intervened just a bit because our audience knows that you can't shut me up, and Andy Lipka has taught me that you can be an MC who, who actually leans forward from time to time, but they committed at the end of this event to do more joint events together. And just by way of contrast, do you ever see friends at Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell actually kind of appearing together. The Senate used to be that way. Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy were friends, and, and they disagreed about things, but they were able to act, have a friendship, and that's less true across the aisle today in the Senate. I actually begin the interview by talking a little bit about how the, the court, in my view, is less dysfunctional than the other institutions in Washington, D.C. So check it out, audience members. And I alluded to the, um, my, my trip to Washington. Uh, when I was there, I went to the National Portrait Gallery, and, which is a wonderful museum, by the way. It's part of the Smithsonian Institution. And um, at that gallery, they have a portrait of the female Supreme Court justices. But it doesn't have Amy Coney Barrett in it, because it was painted before she was there. So you have... Or Katenji Brown-Jackson now, uh, of course. Correct, um, correct. You know. <laughs> Although she sat yet, yes. But yes, um, so you have, you know, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, you have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan in this uh, painting together. So I couldn't help but think about uh, this at that time. So there you go. Um, and I do recommend the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, one thing it has there also is this uh, bust of Lincoln. We'll have to talk about that at some point as well, and his hands. Yes, because there are only there are only a few in the world. One was owned by Mussolini. This is a life cast of Lincoln. It was done in February, eighteen sixty-five. He sat for it, so to speak, and and plaster was wrapped around him, or to create this life mask. Only a couple of months before his passing. It's, it's really an extraordinary three-dimensional likeness of Lincoln. There are only a few in the world. One was actually, I think Andy has told me, owned by Mussolini, but uh, what Andy is in part alluding to is there may be five, you know, five or six in, in the world, and Andy Lipka has one, and thanks to Andy Lipka, I have another because that was a great birthday gift he gave me a while back, and, and Andy 
you're the most extraordinary friend uh, imaginable. And but it's something that Andy and I have in, in, in common in our parlors is this. And there's one in Chicago. I think that was maybe the one owned by Mussolini. Um, it's right next to actually the actual deathbed of Lincoln in the room across from Ford's theater where he passed. So there's one in Chicago. There's one in Washington, D.C. Uh, Andy Lipka has one. Akhil Amar has one. Another friend of Andy Lipka's, uh, our friend Stephen Smith, has one. And I'm not sure if anyone else has one. Right, and although I have to have a shout out to our, our friend, the sculptor, uh, Margot McMahon, great sculptor in Chicago, has done a lot of public art there, very important art. And uh, it, the foundry was in her family. And, you know, it's, it's a gift from her every bit as much as, as it is from me. So I don't want her to receive <laughs> re short shift there. Of course, uh, you know, she's, she's the artist. Um, yes. but, but Andy, how did she and you and I and Stephen all come to know each other, by well, the by? Well, it came, to, came by way of Ever Scholar and its predecessor. That really goes to the heart of what Ever Scholar does, uh, bring together fascinating people, important scholars, with um, people that have accomplished a lot in their, in their private lives, or haven't, but have you know, great intellectual curiosity. Um, and this is, it's so much more than just sitting in class, because when you sit in class at a kind of a fundamental level where you both are, have prepared dramatic, uh, tremendously, and you're participating actively, and you're doing it intensely over a period of days or, or even weeks, new friendships form, and the interchange and the exchange is, goes beyond the classroom in many, many ways. Okay. Right. Never Scholar, of course, is your, your baby, um, and it's the sponsor of, of, of our podcast, which um, you know, bears my name, but is, is your brainchild. And yes, Margot and Andy and Stephen Smith, who was a co-teacher at that event, and yours truly, we all came together in friendship. The sculptor, the um, MC, the, the two professors, we all bonded in friendship. It an Ever Scholar program, and we all have this love of Lincoln, of course. And and yes, Andy, that's the sort of thing you do is you you bring people together. And and of course, we don't have that kind of intimacy in the podcast in every way. Um, there are close to a hundred thousand of you um, out there now, I've been told. But we think of you as our friend. Uh, we you're listening to just a conversation that Andy and I have every week, you know, friend to friend, um, in Ever Scholar fashion. And, and with the friendship in mind, uh, we have something we want to offer you a little bit later, uh, which we'll talk about in this podcast. And just, Andy, on, the, on that, you can sense a genuine friendship between Amy Coney Barrett and Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, see, the, see the episode. They disagree about a lot of things, but they are on a small court for life. And we're going to talk about for life in, in just a moment, Dandy. And, and so, ooh, they have to get along. Otherwise, it won't be such a good life. Yes. And we're going to put the link, of course, to the YouTube um, on the website. Uh, and you should listen to it or watch it after you finish listening to this podcast. <laughs> Don't jump off it now to do that. Okay. So what else happened this week? Well, um, in our podcast, in the past, we had an episode, um, 18 Arguments for 18 Years. I don't remember the precise title, but something like that. And this had to do with a phrase that we 
handled carefully, so-called term limits uh, for Supreme Court justices. And it's been in and out of the news uh, since then. This goes back to, I think, 2002 when uh, Akil and uh, Steve Calabresi first offered this idea to the public. And, um, and we did two follow-up podcast episodes after that first one, Andy. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's been mentioned from time to time. But now uh, it, it's one step closer to reality, one might say, um, in that it's been offered as a bill. And in the House, it was proposed by uh, Representative uh, Johnson, I believe, from Georgia. Akil, have you had a chance to look over this bill? I have. It's a very short bill. And um, Andy, actually, why don't you read the relevant provisions out to our audience? We'll, we'll um, uh, post it, of course, on the website. But it's two pages. Yes, the bill is, is brief. Yeah, okay. two pages so, with big margins and, and, and large type. Right. <laughs> so the, the bill is attempt to amend... Uh, Title 28 of the U.S. Code, it says its purpose to provide for the duration of active service of justices of the Supreme Court and for other purposes. This act may be cited as the Supreme Court Tenure Establishment and Retirement Modernization Act of 2022. Just rolls off the tongue. Okay. (laughs) So it it amends uh, Chapter 1, Title 28 of the U.S. Code. First section is regular appointment of justices. The president shall, during the first and third years, after a year in which there is a presidential election, nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, appoint one justice of the Supreme Court. Exclusive method of appointment, the president shall not appoint any justice of the Supreme Court except as provided in this section. Okay, next is the duration of active service. Each justice shall serve in regular active service for 18 years from the date of the justice's commission, after which the justice shall be deemed to have retired from regular active service under the previous section. And and that applies to new justices. The next section purports to apply to current justices. Each justice who was appointed before the date of enactment of this section and who is serving as a justice on the date of enactment of this section shall, notwithstanding the period of service of the justice, in order of duration of service, beginning with the justice who has served on the Supreme Court for the longest period of time, be deemed to have retired from regular active service under section blah, 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 blah. Okay. Then they go on to uh, some various, you know, removing periods and commas and things like that. And then they say, um, in the event that the number of justices of the Supreme Court falls below that provided in Section 1 due to vacancy, disability, or disqualification, the justice of the Supreme Court who has most recently retired from regular active service under Section 371 but retained their office shall serve as an associate justice until the number of justices who have not retired from active service equals that provided in Section 1. And that's... So there's some legalese there, of course. But what they're basically saying is if the number falls below 9, then the retired justices can kind of rotate back into the lineup. Okay, my, my young... Padawan, my my uh, uh, apprentice, my um, ever scholar student. We yes, have I'm had older than you, several. By the 
<laughs> no, you are, but just barely. Um, so we have had at least three sessions on this now. We, we had 18 uh, arguments for 18 years, and then we had a, another one witness in the center square when, uh, about my testimony before the Biden Commission on this topic, and then when the Biden Commission actually issued its report, we had yet a third episode. So you thought about this now a bit. So if this were a Socratic classroom, I might ask student Lipka to identify some of the main features of the bill that actually, frankly, borrow from the MR plan. What are they? Okay, Professor Kingsfield. Um. <laughs> you spin the tumblers of your mind. Yes, you, you come yes. here, your mind is mush. Yes, the mush. Yes. <laughs> yes, and yeah, you're cracking the whip and saying mush. Okay, so, um, all right, well, some of them are, are obvious. So first of all, there's the 18-year the term, or yes. period, um, which is... And yes. of course, the 18 years is not an accident. 18 goes into nine. 18, you know, there's, uh, you know, also two is a number that's relevant to 18. So it's not, it's not an accident for the reasons yeah. that nine times said. two, mm -hmm. you, you know. Yes. Yeah. So Every two. Yeah. Yes. So 18 years. Yes. Not 15. Not 12. Not 23 and a half. Okay. 18. That's the Akilamar Steve Calabresi idea from 20 years ago in the Washington Post. And, and that's really, I think, caught on, you know, the 18, most of the proposals that we've read or discussion that we've read about this um, countenances 18. Okay. Um, yep. So and, and, and we talk about that, why it's a magic number, and my testimony talks about that, especially if you want to basically lock into place nine going forward, not nine justices. Okay. And by uh, the which way... Which actually per, um, discourages future court packing. And by the way, I encourage the audience to engage in this exercise as well. We'll post the, uh, the, the bill on the, on the website as well. What uh, else? Another is that the uh, replacement or the nominations will take place in the first and third years of the president's term. So that um, right. so-called off years. Yes, and that's another feature of my testimony. The idea is that these are the, the least fevered, the coolest moments in our democratic cycles, so they're not election years. So we're evening things out across presidents, kind of each one gets two. We're evening things out within presidencies, years one and three. Often the president has the Senate in his or her one day uh, first uh, two years, but often sometimes loses the Senate in the second half of a, of a presidential term. And if so, you're going to get maybe one justice who is the product of, in effect, unified government, president Senate controlled by the same party, and one who's a product of divided government. So kind of one purist and, and, and one balancer. Okay. And that gave me <clears throat> some time to look over. <laughs> the bills. Um, so uh, it's, first of all, the fact that it's a statute. It's not a constitutional amendment. Um, right. And that's part of your proposal, and I think an important part, because, you know, it gives it a chance of actually happening. Right, because you can't easily get two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states to agree on anything, including whether the sky is blue or the earth is round today. So if, if something's going to happen, it's going to be by a statute. It's going to need to be bipartisan in a certain way, but there won't be massive support for, for anything, no matter how sensible. And, you know, related to that, it's, 
in addition to the fact that it's a statute and therefore uh, you know, has a chance of getting adopted, the fact that it's a statute is a statement that you believe that it does not require a constitutional amendment. So those, yes. are, those are related, uh, obviously very closely related points. Yep. Okay, and then um, the other one would be that the vacancies that, uh, the temporary vacancies that may exist um, are filled by uh, retired justices. And more generally, there is a kind of a duty roster of what retired justices can do. The statute says they can basically do stuff akin to what retired justices today do, David Souter, or allowed to do, uh, David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, now Stephen Breyer. So finding something for someone to do post-18 years, mm -hmm. um, after 18 years, that's Again, a similarity between this short bill and the Amar plan, as outlined, outlined especially in my testimony before the Biden Commission. Yep. Well, I think that's pretty much it in terms of, I mean, first of all, I think that's pretty much all that's in the bill. <laughs> um, so and, and that's, uh, that's pretty much there what's, in terms of what's in common with your proposal. Okay. Now, what are some of the differences and um, which one do you uh, prefer, student Lipka? Okay, so you're not going to call on student Ford at this point, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, so first of all, one of the things that is in common with the plan is also, you know, in a way, I think a, a problem or a, you know, a differentiated from, from your plan. You know, it talks about the first and third years as being the time when uh, the president will nominate uh, and, and get the advice and consent of the Senate. But it says the president shall not appoint any justice of the Supreme Court except as provided in this section, which means only during the first and third years. And that is, to me, quite problematic because, first of all, um, what if a vacancy occurs in the second year? Does that mean you have to wait until the third year to nominate someone? Um, this is a regularized appointment of justices, but there also is an irregularized appointment that occurs randomly. So you're, it, it attempts to impose order on retirement of justices, but justices can leave, you know, at other times either voluntarily or, um, you know, or involuntarily. <laughs> I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, and 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 my proposal sort of dealt with that by providing for off year so to speak, irregular appointments, uh, nominations, and confirmations to fill up the rump of the vacating justice's term, the way we do for the Senate. Um, if someone leaves early, then we place that immediately with someone who fills up the remainder of the term, the rump of the term, and they don't have that here. Uh, and, you know, this is related, but, but I think it's an important qualification also. Suppose the, the president nominates someone, as provided here, but then the Senate fails to confirm that person or rejects them, and now the first year is over. Um, yes. Does the president get to nominate someone else then? It would, it would appear not, according to this. And furthermore, yes. that provides an incentive for the Senate to not confirm um, in, under certain and, and circumstances. And if you look at the technical, yes. And if you look at the technical details of my proposal, it avoids all of that. And they even have the 18 years, and this one triggered by the Justice's Commission 
And in my model, it's actually the start date of the, of the nomination, which for technical reasons is actually better. So, but there's an even bigger problem, isn't there, Student Lipka? Yes, there are. Can, there can are you see it? Do products? you see it? <laughs> well, I think, you know, when we talk about having this as a statute rather than a constitutional amendment, one of the big things that we're up against is the notion of life tenure, um, that, the, that the justices have, have life tenure. And um, so we mentioned that it provides for uh, something for them to do in the sense of filling in uh, when, when there's a vacancy and it hasn't been filled yet. Uh, but I think that, that in some ways that's not enough, or at least it, it provides ammunition for those who, who would oppose it saying, that no, you're going against the constitutional provision of life tenure. And in your proposal, you have you know a variety of things from the writing, writing circuit, um, which you know harkens back to the early days of the Republic when the justices wrote circuit. Um, but they can do that just as David Souter can. In this bill, they can ride circuit the way David Souter or Stephen Breyer or Anthony Kennedy can. So that's not it's so not that they much can't the do it. biggest difference. It's not that they can't do it, but they don't provide, but it doesn't specifically provide for it. So there's no... It, well, it, it does actually in this cryptic cross-reference when it says they can do the same things that currently retired justices okay. can do, which include writing circuit. Mm -hmm. so, so, but, but my proposal gives them a lot more stuff to do. Right and indeed invites current justices to, to try to play a role in defining what would be a good duty roster for retired justices, post-18-year justices. Yes, and then I think an even more important, in some ways, I probably should have not buried the lead here, um, is that the question of whether it's prospective or not um, arises. So the last paragraph you know, targets the uh, sitting justices. It doesn't right. exempt them. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's basically every justice, uh, or I guess it would be eight, section eight, uh, paragraph B. Um, and so just specifically justices Alito and Thomas um, would be out on their ears um, here. It, and and it you're never going to get off. That. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps it at nine, which means that the first new appointment will push off the most senior justice and the next regular appointment will push off the next most senior justice. You know, the Democrats who are proposing this thinks that this is a, a feature and not a bug, but this is, let's be blunt, throw Clarence from the train. Throw Sam from the train. That's what's going on, and that's why it will never pass. No Republican would ever agree to that. And, and what do they say? Oh, they're deemed to be retired, but, but they're not like David Souter, who voluntarily stepped down. They're not like Anthony Kennedy, who voluntarily stepped down. They're not like Steve Breyer, who voluntarily stepped down. They're being pushed off. Now, that keeps it at nine, but in the MR plan, there's a different transition. We add some new ones, but no one gets pushed off, and temporarily the number increases above nine, but then it'll, it'll gradually subside and, and achieve a new equilibrium at nine. And another aspect of this, Andy, is under my version, everyone can basically be said to have genuinely agreed to retire. They are agreeing to retire before they've even been commissioned. They are agreeing to retire in the very process of taking office uh, under this new statute. But that's, you can't quite say that about Clarence Thomas or Samuel Lito. When they were confirmed, these weren't the rules. Now, it might be constitutional to do it this way. Um, I'm not saying it's unconstitutional, but, ooh, it's going to raise that that quasi-retroactivity is going to be a huge problem, at least politically, 
definitely in terms of fairness and appearance. It's not a coincidence that it's first Clarence Thomas and then Sam Alito, that is the authors of the Bruin and the Dobbs opinion, just in case, uh, audience, you missed all of that. And, by the way, this is going to, people are going to challenge this before the United States Supreme Court. But now, which Supreme Court justices are going to even hear the challenge? Because on, on this view, oh, Clarence Thomas isn't on the court at a certain point. And, but does he get to sit on whether Clarence Thomas is still on the court or not? Oh my gosh, we've got you know, two different bodies, one with him and one without him, claiming to be the Supreme Court. We've got one pope in Rome and another one in Avignon. This is disastrous. And the other justices who aren't named Clarence Thomas or Samuel Ito are still going to feel very awkward about upholding this. Even if it is constitutional, the question isn't just what does Akil Amar think is constitutional, it's do the justices think it's constitutional? And, uh, and apropos the friendship between Amy Coney Barrett and, and Sonia Sotomayor, I'm not sure that they're going to want to easily try to agree that others can be thrown off the train that way. Okay, so uh, hopefully your, your student has risen to the occasion and identified <laughs> the appropriate uh, flaws in the bill as well as the ways in which it admirably tracks uh, your proposal. Um, so here we have the bill, but if it has these flaws, like I think probably the most difficult one that it has to deal with is, is this notion of uh, kicking the uh, Justices Thomas and Alito out uh, right up front. Um, which would make it very difficult to pass, as we've mentioned. Um, so is this just But, but Andy, Andy, there's one other flaw, my, my Padawan, that I'm not sure you, you, you mentioned yes. maybe even the biggest one of all. Yes. And I know you know this. Yes, I do. Which is a, basically, you know, I, I talked earlier, it's just a flaw I pointed out before, but on steroids. Um, I pointed out the fact that the, um, the bill as written limits the president to nominating justices in the first and third years. And it doesn't really provide for what would happen if, let's say, all the justices were killed at once. You know, if there was a, you know, a bomb at the State of the Union or something like that. A, pan a, pan a, a deadly pandemic. Right. Any number of disasters that one might imagine uh, could occur. Um, and if it's not the first or third year, then you've got no Supreme Court um, so it, it really doesn't address that. And that's, that's yeah, it, it, it will only take, you know, uh, 18 years to, to, to get back up to speed. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's a good plan, not. Right. But at any rate, so there are these numbers of flaws. And does that mean that the bill is just DOA and it's, you know, it's just sort of a, a curiosity that we can dis readily dismiss? Or is there a way to get from here to there? Well, remember, we're putting my testimony up there. I have my alternative plan. It's, it's a short one. It avoids all these problems, in, including the what happens if they all are wiped out in some natural disaster. Look, it's a good sign that we actually we have a bill. It's being introduced in the House and Senate. Maybe with any luck, and, and, and it has these attractive features, 18 years, Biennial replenishment in odd years, one, three, five, seven, nine, which are non-election years when the political temperature is cooler. We have things for just, uh, justices uh, post-retirement to do. We're doing it all by statute. Those are the features, as you identified, Andy, that my proposal has in common with these bills. Now that the bills have been introduced, with luck, there'll be hearings, maybe in the House, maybe in the Senate, and 
with luck in these hearings, people will be invited to testify, you know, um, self-proclaimed experts on, on, on the topic. I have at least, you know, one person in mind <laughs> whom I'd love to be in, in, invited to the hearing. Call me, maybe. And audience, me and if I am invited uh, to testify, audience members, you know what I'll say. Right. No surprises. Back to the future. And speaking of Back to the Future, in our last episode, as well as the introduction to this one, we told you that we were going to review Professor Amar's prescient uh, comments from years ago, 23 years ago to be exact. We're going to go back to a moot court that was held in 1999, which opens an almost eerie window on the most recent cases, especially Carson and Kennedy. Okay, so Professor Moore is going to explain some of the specifics of the cases uh, involved here in this um, moot court, this moot trial, uh, on which he served as a, as a judge. But I just wanted to discuss why we're playing these clips. And I, I think that uh, after reviewing them, there's really two reasons, two main reasons. One is Professor Moore has been consistent in emphasizing his consistency and talking <laughs> about the fact that uh, for many years, for example, he's been uh, consistent on Roe, or he's been consistent on Bush versus Gore and the ISL theory. Um, and this is another example of his consistency. And why do we care that he's consistent, um, other than you know for his credibility? Part of it is because this is the nature of originalism, in his view, as opposed to uh, arguing only from precedent, is that you have the ability to be consistent because you're taking things back to the Constitution. You have okay. a pole star. The, in the precedents are going to shift, but you actually steer by true north. So that's, that's one reason to play it. But there's, a, there's actually a deeper reason, which um, became evident when we reviewed the, the clips. There are two lawyers that are going to be arguing here. There's Professor Sherry from the University of Minnesota and Professor Chemerinsky from Loyola um, of Chicago and then later uh, at Berkeley. And you're going to see that Professor Sherry has what sounds like a winning argument, but she's unwilling to go all the way to say that the cases that you'll hear about, Meek and Wallman, um, that Professor Amaro described to you, should be overruled, even though it's pretty clear that she believes that they should be overruled. And why, why is that? It's because she's trying to win the case. She's not, her, her, job is not to is not to change the constitution or reaffirm the constitution um, but rather to win the case so it falls to the justices or the judges uh, in this case to take on that responsibility and that goes back to these questions of whether um you know if you only look at the precedents is that enough or do you overturn a precedent for no reason other than that it is egregiously wrong etc these themes that we've sounded throughout our uh, recent podcasts, actually throughout the whole year and a half that we've been doing this. And Professor Marr will point out to us as we listen to these clips how these themes are evidenced by these clips. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about a little background on these these cases? 
So this is from 1999. The case is Mitchell versus Helms. It's a moot court at uh, William and Mary, and they asked me to be one of the judges, uh, uh, one of the justices. Others include uh, Chief Justice Joan Biskupic, Justice Linda Greenhouse. Joan is going to be on our podcast. She's agreed in principle. Linda Greenhouse has been on our podcast, and obviously we hope they will be on again at, at some point. So there were these leading journalists who covered the court who were also tapped to to, to be mock justices. There were some other academics. I was one of them. Uh, C-SPAN covered it. It's 1999. And what you're going to hear in my voice is a pure academic who has a, a clean principle and who is an originalist and who says that we need to basically, as, as you mentioned, Andy, rethink some of the precedents, toss them overboard in order to clarify the law so that the law has a clean uh, principle that aligns with the Constitution. Mitchell versus Helms was a, an early kind of proto-voucher case. It involved government money that flowed to various private schools, both private religious schools and private non-religious schools. It, it flowed to them on equal terms, and the question was whether that government money flowing to private schools that were properly credited, that taught the three R's um, and, and the like, whether that, that government money flowing to the religious school on equal terms with the private non-religious school was a violation of the Establishment Clause. The case didn't yet concern whether the government had to treat the religious private school equally, but simply whether it was even allowed to do so, or as you'll hear later, whether somehow the Constitution required the government to discriminate against religious schools as such. So the case is Mitchell versus Helm. There are discussions of two earlier Burger Court cases called Meek and Wolman that had all sorts of weird distinctions. Oh, the government can do this for the private school, but not uh, private religious school, but not that. It can, it can give this kind of aid, but not that one. All sorts of weird, arcane distinctions in the name of separation using the, fa the famous, now basically discredited by Carson Lemon test by Carson and Kennedy case, where the court has basically moved away from the Lemon Test. Well, the Lemon Test was used in cases called Wolman and, and Meek from the 1970s under the Burger Court to actually, in the name of non-establishment and separation, constrict the kind of aid that government could give to private religious schools, even if it was completely the same aid that it gave to private non-religious schools. Okay, so you'll hear uh, Professor Sherry reference Meek and Wallman, and, and so it's important that you had a little sense of what they're about. I think you'll get an idea of what they're about um, just by listening to the clips as well. So here's um, Professor Sherry. Um, are you suggesting that programs that are focused on private schools would then be unconstitutional? Your Honor, that's what this court has held in the past, and that's exactly how this court has distinguished cases such as Meek v. Pittenger and Wallman v. Walter, which are the two main cases from the 1970s uh, on which the Fifth Circuit relied in holding this program unconstitutional. In both of those cases, the aid was targeted to religious schools. In the one case, more than 75% of the government aid went to religious schools, and in the other case, 
case, more than 90% of the aid went to religious schools. Um, and uh, it was, as the court called it, massive aid to religious schools, whereas this case involves uh, aid uh, across the board to all schools, with only a small portion of it going to religious schools. And with the determination of where the money goes being made by individual parents, which is a factor that this court has looked at in the past. Do you think we should reaffirm me rather than overrule it? I don't think that there, Your Honor, that there is any necessity either to, over, to affirm it or to overrule it. It has, Meek has created some arbitrary distinctions and it is probably ripe for overruling, but this court need not overrule it in order to reverse the Fifth Circuit because Meek is distinguishable on the ground that the aid was targeted to religious schools. It was not available, uh, I'm sorry, it was targeted only to private schools and it was mostly aimed at religious schools uh, and it was not available to public schools. Uh, it also, another test that this court has asked is whether the aid supplants or supplements rather than supplants the, uh, the expenses that would otherwise be borne by the religious, the religious institution. And what's the First Amendment significance of any of those distinctions? Your Honor, this court has tried to balance the free exercise clause and the establishment clause to create neutral government neutrality towards religion without permitting either preferences for religion, such as aid targeted at religious schools, or hostility. was not targeted at religious schools as such, but at all private schools, religious and non-religious. So with this neutrality, I actually have difficulty understanding why Meek was decided the way it was. Your Honor, I have some difficulty understanding why Meek was decided the way it was as well. And as I said, it created some arbitrary distinctions that are perhaps ripe for overruling, including, for example, the distinction between a book, a textbook, which is a permissible aid to a religious school, and a map, which is not a permissible aid to a religious school, which leads one to wonder what to make of an atlas, which, of course, is a book of maps. If we were just parsing sentences, you see, I asked what the First Amendment significance of some of these distinctions are between books and maps and between supplanting and supplementing and, and even what percentage of the money goes to religious schools versus non-religious schools because tomorrow those percentages can change because enrollment will change and new schools will pop up and other schools will die out. I, I look at whether the law itself is treating religion the same as non-religious, treating the religious school, the religious private school, any differently than the non-religious private school. That's neutrality, that's equality. So I ask, the subject of my sentence is, what's the First Amendment you know, significance of this, the constitutional significance? And note the response, which is an originalist-like question, note that her response is, the Supreme Court has said. That's just exactly like uh, in Katenji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearing, she gets asked a question, and because she's very well trained, as is Susanna Sherry, the answer is just, it's just ingrained, is the Supreme Court has said, the Supreme Court has said. The problem is, some of what the Supreme Court has said is errant nonsense. And even if the Supreme Court has a, an amazing track record, a great batting average. Suppose it, it bats 950. Well, that means, you know, 5% of the cases are still going to be wrong. And it's the job of the court to correct those mistakes in a certain kind of originalist-like 
um, jurist, and, and that's who I was in, in, the, in this moot court, is going to try to figure out which are the wrongly decided cases, why they're wrong, because they're, they're basically rooted in an incorrect principle, and urge that they be not merely distinguished, slowly, one case after another after another, but eventually just tossed overboard because they don't make any sense. And you can see from, from her point of view that you know, she, she'll need a majority of the justices. She's got you, right? but she figures, well, in order to win the case, exactly. she, she doesn't need to go that far. Right. So. And she's saying, like, thank you, Justice Amar. Thanks, Akil, but, but no thanks, because you're, you're pushing me toward a pure position, but an extreme position. And Andy, you and I talk a lot about our, our love of Lincoln. And Lincoln had, in turn, a love of Euclid. It was one of his favorite books because he loved logic. He loved mathematical proofs. He loves Occam's razor. So basically, you know, if, if there's a principle, you just sort of follow the principle. So for example, here are two famous Lincoln episodes because I'm channeling my, my inner Lincoln here. You know, one he says like, well, what justifies slavery? Is it the idea that you're lighter skinned than the person you enslave? Well, beware, because if that's your theory, the first time on the road you meet someone who's lighter skinned than you, he gets to enslave you. Is it that you're more intelligent than the person you're enslaving? Well, beware, because someone's going to be more intelligent than you, and he's going to get to enslave you. So it's just, the, what's the logic of the position? Very famously, in his exchange with Horace Greeley, who's urging him to, to emancipate slaves, and Lincoln is in fact already planning to do it, but he doesn't want to yet um, tip his hand. So he says, actually, my goal is to win the war. That's my aim. If I can win the war by freeing no slaves at all, I'll do that. If I can win the war by freeing all the slaves, I'll do that. If I can win the war by freeing some of the slaves and not freeing other of the slaves, I will do that too. It's like it's pure Occam's razor. You know, it's like green eggs and ham. You know, I do not like them. Sam, I am. I do not like them in a box, you know, with a fox in the rain, on a train, you know, here or there. I do not like green eggs and ham anywhere. It's just the, the, the clean logic. And, and, if, and I'm saying, look, if the logic of your position is equality or neutrality, what are all these ridiculous distinctions between maps and books and supplanting and supplementing and the, the aid going directly to the school versus indirectly and all the rest? What, what's, what's up with all that? It makes no sense. We'll have to talk some more about that letter from Lincoln to Greeley because that's often been used by people to say, well, look, Lincoln didn't really care about slavery. He says he would, you know, but of course the logic can be, if you go a little deeper, you can say, well, he may not have believed that he could win the war without freeing slaves. And he also was boxed in because if he, if he identifies a different purpose, he's going to get smacked down by Roger Tawney. So he actually has to identify something other than the pure immorality of slavery. But he's, he's beautifully laying the ground. He knows that he's going to be freeing the slaves. Greeley doesn't do it. It's, 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 it's political genius and it's analytic logic genius. Okay, so let's move on to the next clip, which is a brief clip, where just to discuss where you you mention the importance of the concept of equality. What happened to equality, which was your first sentence? <coughs> Educational equality was your first sentence, counsel, and now you're saying actually that equality isn't the idea that uh, private schools can have uh, that as long as they're not religious, they can have blackboards, and public schools can have blackboards, but not 
private religious school. I'm a little well, Your Honor, that may also be a result of the cases like Meek and Wallman, which do seem to point in rather different directions than the most recent case, than the Rosenberger case. And just so our audience knows, not, not to hide the ball, in the actual Mitchell versus Helm case, Susanna Sherry, Professor Sherry's side wins, you know, my side, the equality and neutrality side, and Meek and Wallman are in fact overruled in the name of constitutional first principles, but the, the opinion doesn't result in a clear majority. There's a plurality, and then Justice O'Connor writes a separate concurrence, so there are not five votes for one clear proposition. So, but the position that I, the very advanced position that I was putting forth, that, that we, these cases need to be overruled, actually prevailed. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the real meat here, which is when the other side starts to make their arguments. And here's um, Professor Chemerinsky, who's a, a very uh, distinguished and very well-renowned well uh, advocate and professor. If the government gave computers directly to every child in America, and they could use it whatever uh, school they chose, it had to be used for school purposes but, and not personal purposes, that would be okay, I take it? It would be a different case. took those computers to their parochial school. It would be a different case than this, but Your Honor, this court has identified three well, requirements. Well, I think it would still be unconstitutional to the precedence of this court. That's right. every kid in America a computer, that's your position, that the establishment clause of the Constitution means that that is forever off bounds. I think that what you said, if I understand the question, Your Honor, is that the government would be giving each child a computer to use for school purposes. This court has identified three requirements for aid. First, it has to go to public and parochial school students alike. That's not an issue here. Second, the aid has to go to the students and not to the institution. In your hypothetical, this would be met. Though, of course, in the case before us, the aid is going to the institution. And there is a third requirement that this court has articulated. It has to be a kind of aid that likely cannot be used for religious instruction. If the government was giving computers to parochial school students for the use in the schools, then the teachers could use the computers, the audiovisual equipment, for religious instruction. It would violate this court's decisions. The Constitution requires that if the government wants to have a computer giveaway program, everyone gets the computer who goes to public school, Everyone gets the computer who goes to the atheist private academy. Everyone gets the computer who goes to a school that basically just takes no position on religion, the agnostic private academy. And the only folks, the only folks in the world who don't get the computer are people um, who go to a religious school. That's your position. That's what the Constitution requires. First, I believe this court could allow aid to the individual students, but still strike down this program because it's aid to the school. Second, Your Honor, I do believe that the Constitution requires, in certain instances, discrimination against religious schools. This is where respondent disagrees with petitioner the most. Indeed, if there was a non-discrimination principle followed, according petitioner's position, then the government would be obligated to subsidize parochial schools, not merely permitted to do so. The decisions of this court, like Lemon versus Kurtzman, like Meek versus Pittenger, like Woolman versus Walters, all involve the government being required to treat parochial schools differently than public schools. So this is high-level 
chess. It's a fencing match. We're jousting. And I understood the logic of my position and the logic of uh, my friend Erwin Chemerinsky's position. He's a separationist. I'm an equality person. They both can't be right. There's a deep tension. This is Lincoln. This is logic. We're back to Lincoln and logic. And I was trying to maneuver him using hypotheticals to actually show his hand. And I got him to say something that, that I actually think is kind of outrageous, that the Constitution requires discrimination against religion. That's his position, and that's the separationist position, and it's the wrong position, and that's what the court said this year, in last month, in the Carson case. So now you see the uh, significance of all that. And what are the three cases he mentioned? Lemon, which was being repudiated, and its progeny, uh, Meek and Woolman, which were actually overruled back in Mitchell versus Helm. And once again, his answers, like Susanna Sherry's, all, and, and like Katanji Brown-Jackson's, they all begin with the same subject noun. This court, this court, this court. And I keep asking, the Constitution, the Constitution, the Constitution. You see the difference. You, 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 what, you're, what you're seeing here is a certain kind of originalist who believes in equality and a certain kind of precedent person who believes in separation. I, you know, I don't think that he recognized that the absurdity of his position, um, if, you, if, if absurd it was. Yeah, um, this was, um, I was playing for a national audience here. This was C-SPAN, and I wanted to kind of out him. Um, and I think when he uttered those words, he lost much of America, truthfully, um, that somehow the Constitution requires discrimination against religion. But in fairness to him, that's what the cases actually do. And he's honest and clear-eyed enough to understand all that. He actually likes those cases. I don't. Well, eventually you had to give your verdict, and uh, so here it is. Justice Amar? Uh, I haven't been very good about hiding my uh, views. I think that basically uh, this case um, really asks us to uh, decide. The court need not do this. I'm not going to try to predict. I'm going to try to tell you what I actually think should be the case. Um, decide. Uh, which of two possible principles is really our constitutional principle? One is the idea of separation uh, of church and state, a high wall, and the other is the idea of equality. Um, I've spent about 10 years studying um, the Bill of Rights in general and its application also to the states. Um, most of the actually establishment clause cases involve, don't involve the federal government. This one is somewhat unusual, um, but a lot of them just involve state and local governments. The uh, uh, thing that makes First Amendment principles applicable against states is the 14th Amendment, which is very much about equality. I think that rather than the two clauses of the original First Amendment being in tension, free exercise saying don't discriminate against states, uh, against uh, um, religion, and somehow the Establishment Clause says, yes, do discriminate against them. I actually think that they're part of one unifying concept, especially as applied uh, through the 14th Amendment. And the basic idea is equality. The government shouldn't be in the business of preferring religion just because it's religion, but nor should it be in the business of dispreferring religion just because it's religion, taxing it. So um, uh, when... Uh, 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 so here's the baseline for, for this vision. And, and, um, what does a private non-religious school get? If it gets no subsidy, 
and the private religious school shouldn't get a subsidy. Um, but if it gets a benefit, I think that the Establishment Clause surely permits the religious school to get an equal benefit. The only interesting question is whether, it seems to me, that um, principle of equality is actually required or compelled by free exercise and free speech principles. To do otherwise is, in effect, to tax um, religious people as such, to discriminate against them, to say everyone gets the computer except even if you want to go to a private school, uh, uh, but if you want to go to a pri private religious school, then you'll lose the computer. That's like imposing a tax on you just because you choose a religious school. And I don't think that a single constitution can be one where the Establishment Clause requires that kind of discrimination. So you vote to reverse? I do. <laughs> <laughs> With vigor. Now, there are about seven or eight interesting features of that clip, and I hope actually our, our audience uh, might, some of members actually might choose to watch it. You can see it on C-SPAN. So one is even as I begin, and then again as I end, you, Joan Biskupik, who's the Chief Justice, is actually giggling, okay, because I am far and away the most forceful advocate of a certain point of view, because the rest of them are journalists um, to a large extent, or academics who are in the thrall of the, the Burger Court rather than a kind of originalist who's trying to move the law in a certain direction. So she actually kind of chuckles a couple of times. Uh, second and related, journalists are actually in the business of kind of hyping, you know, the news. So when, when Carson comes down, she says, oh, this is an earthquake, this is, you know, big... Joan, we agree, you know, I, I, I advocated this 25 years ago, you should not be surprised. Oh, oh my God, there are people who think that Roe versus Wade is wrongly decided. Well, like, yes, they've been saying it for a long time. This shouldn't have surprised anyone, Carson on the one side or Dobbs on the other. Third, you hear me saying, of course it's not an establishment clause violation to allow the money to flow. The only interesting question is whether the free exercise clause requires it. And in fact, it's clear that I think it, it does. Enter Justice Breyer in the Carson case. He would agree with me that the government can treat the religious private school equally with the non-religious private school. He thinks it's permissible, the establishment clause doesn't prohibit that. At the end of the day, he actually concurred with the result in Mitchell versus Helms back then. He just doesn't think that it's required by free exercise. But once you understand the equality principle, it's not only government treating the religious private school equally is not only permitted by the Establishment Clause, it's, it's required by free exercise. Fourth, I use a certain word. It's an academic word. It's a shout out, Andy, actually, to your son Matthew's great mentor at the Harvard Law School, the great Cass Sunstein, whom I hold in very high regard indeed. The word is baseline. A lot of times what we actually need to do is figure out what the proper baseline of analysis is. And I say, here's the proper baseline, not what the public school gets because it's perfectly okay to say public schools get government money and no private school whatever gets government money. That's perfectly okay. And that distinction between public and private schools is not a religious distinction, and it's perfectly permissible. But I say my baseline is what does the private non-religious school get? 
If it gets nothing, then the private religious school should get nothing. But if it gets a computer, then so should the private religious school. If it gets a voucher, so should the private religious school. The question, and it's a Cass Sunstein-like formulation. Cass has written very famously, uh, he's written on many, many things, but, but one is to specify the proper baseline of analysis. What counts as a subsidy? Because you know, Irwin thinks all these things are subsidies, you know, because government money is flowing. And I think, no, it's not a subsidy if the private non-religious school is getting it. It's not a subsidy for the, the private religious school to get the same thing. It's actually just equal treatment. That's the baseline. Well, and it could if be considered you, a subsidy of private school as opposed to not having private school. So, so that you know, by, by providing the e equal money to both the religious schools and the non-religious schools, the government is making private education more viable you, than it would all, be. All, all true, but for free exercise purposes, right. you see, the, the, the baseline question is a different one. And, and you see, at the end of the day, Irwin has the wrong idea of, is it a subsidy to the, ch of sub of sub to the church that we provide police protection and fire protection so that when there's a fire at the church, they, um, uh, the, the, the fire department puts out the fire and, and, and the church doesn't have to spend its own resources to have a volunteer fire department, uh, uh, you know, a fi fire a, a brigade, or it doesn't have to have its, um, we provide police protection so it doesn't have to hire private security guards. We don't think of that as a subsidy to religion. We just say the church gets the same police and fire protection as the supermarket and the factory and the private dwelling. And here are a couple of other uh, related things that you just heard in that clip. Because <laughs> I am who I am, I'm very consistent, so what do I say? I say, oh, I'm a scholar, and I've written a book on this, and I've studied for 10 years. And I know that's annoying uh, when, when I claim authority that way, but that is who I am. And, and it's connected to what this podcast is, is all about, which is trying to give the audience a kind of more scholarly take on current events. But what's the specific application? I say, oh, I've just written basically a book, which I had, just finished a book. It was published in 1998, a year before this C-SPAN event, um, called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. And what was the takeaway? That you have to think about the Bill of Rights through the prism of Reconstruction. The Bill of Rights was proposed in 1789 and ratified in 1791, but in fact, today, to actually think about free speech or free press or gun rights or free exercise, you have to think not just about what things meant at the founding, but what they meant after the, and because of the 14th Amendment. And so our audience, of course, knows that's so how I think about guns. The, the, the Bruin case, in my view, is very much about the Freedmen's Bureau Bill and Reconstruction and Dred Scott and all of that. And so too here, my, the audience knows, oh, I think about free exercise and non-establishment, not just through the prism of the founding experience, but the Reconstruction experience. And I think the key idea is equality. You heard all of that in, in that clip. It's the same person, a scholar, you know, with certain consistent themes. And, and the point, Andy, of course, isn't, oh, I was right back then or something like that. That's not what this is about at all. The point is, this is a podcast it's very much about scholarship. That's always encouraging um, readers to, to, to read more, to um, read the articles that we put up on the show notes and the books. 
um, that we plug every, or at least that I plug every 30 seconds. That's the words that made us. Um, that's the one that we're plugging now, but you see back then mm-hmm. I hadn't written that. That was just a glint in my eye. Back then it was the Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. And it was all about method issues, about thinking about the, the, um, our rights tradition through the prism of Reconstruction. That's the very book, you see, that's cited by Justice Thomas in the Bruin majority for this very proposition. That was about gun rights, about reading things through the prism of Reconstruction, and that was the very issue that Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote about. She she only wrote a couple of pages in her concurrence, but it was about the method issue. She understood, as an originalist, that's a really important thing. So back then, I was saying, oh, if you understand history in a very deep way, you'll be an American, you're going to be connecting to other Americans, because that's what we have in common, is our history, and it's going to tell you which cases are right and which ones are wrong. It's going to give you true north, a pole star that we originalists steer by. If you're just a precedent person, then the precedents can drift this way or that way, and and, and you never get back to to true north. If originalism turns out to be a a right theory, and we're going to talk more about this, Andy, in in, uh, upcoming episodes, you can predict the future because you can see where true north is and you can see if we've drifted off in this direction or that one and which cases are going to need to be rethought. So originalism has the potential, or at least this is what I do believe, to not only give us a deep understanding of our past, our collective past, it's what we have in common as Americans, but we can, you can actually see further. You can predict which cases are ripe for overruling and which ones aren't, because which ones are out of sync with what the Constitution really said and meant. And back then, the book was The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, and it's taken 25 years, but we're basically where I proposed that we should be back in 1998-99. Today, it's a new book, and, and who knows, actually, you know, what all the issues are, are going to be that are on the table in, in, in 20 years. The book talks about lots of issues, but my prediction is the stuff that that book talks about, which is what our Constitution really is all about, will, I believe, and I hope, inform the judges and the senators and, and the presidents of the future when they actually try to bring their conduct into alignment with true north, with the Constitution. We've already seen one issue, and it'll be a big test case next term. The, uh, chapter 3 of The Words That Made Us is all about just how important, how transcendently important the state constitutions were in 1776. It's a chapter called We, and it's all about how that's what the American Revolution initially was about, that that, let Massachusetts be Massachusetts, and it could have its own constitution, and Virginia be Virginia. When I wrote that, I wasn't thinking about ISL at all, because I wrote it several years ago, but when Vic and I started thinking about ISL, I realized, oh my goodness, actually, if I'm right about the significance of state constitutions, if Gordon Wood is right in his epic book, The Creation of American Republic, which is all about state constitutions, you see, if, if Gordon is right and I'm right, that has huge implications for ISL. Of course, state legislatures are creatures of state constitutions. How could it be otherwise once we know our history? And actually, with your permission, Andy, I'd just like to read a few paragraphs of the relevant section of the words that made us. And, and I misspoke earlier. I said chapter three. It's actually the beginning of chapter 
4, a chapter called We. So this is the beginning of uh, chapter 4, and I'm just going to uh, read a few uh, paragraphs. And to repeat, when I'm composing this, I, I have no idea that it's going to be relevant to ISL, but of course it is. For all their anxiety, Americans also thrilled at the prospect before them. Quote, we have every opportunity, wrote Thomas Paine in his stirring closing passage of Common Sense, to form the noblest, purest constitution on the face of the earth. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. A situation similar to the present hath not happened since the days of Noah. Unquote. John Adams, usually far less utopian than Paine, also rhapsodic. You and I, he wrote to a friend in a meditation that soon became a widely read pamphlet, have been sent into life at a time when the greatest lawgivers of antiquity would have wished to have lived. How few of the human race have ever enjoyed an opportunity of making an election of government for themselves or their children? When, before the present epoch, had three millions of people full power and fair opportunity to form and establish the wisest and happiest government that human wisdom can contrive. One more paragraph. On May 17, 1776, John wrote Abigail. He had just successfully championed a two-part resolution urging each colony to form its own government entirely free from any political or legal connection to George III or Britain. The resolution, he explained with a mixture of pride and awe, was tantamount to absolute independence. The real reward for Adams would be the freedom of Massachusetts and every other form in mainland colony to choose its own state government and then to govern itself. Quote, a whole government of our own choice managed by persons whom we love, revere, and can confide in, has charms in it for which men will fight. So that's what the American Revolution, you see, is about. State constitutions. Last couple of sentences. To find the true meaning of American independence, circa 1776, I write in this chapter, we must thus look beyond the Continental Congress. We will not find all the answers to the meaning of 1776 in documents that fully emerged only years later. The Articles of Confederation, 1781, the Northwest Ordinance, 1787, and the Ultimate Federal Constitution, 1787-88. No, if we are to understand what all the shouting was about in 1776, what the main point of the conversation was, we must first ponder the state constitutions that sprouted like so many daffodils up and down the continent in the springtime of the new world. So that's what I'm writing. I'm not thinking about ISL, but I, 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 I get it. And when I'm doing the history, oh my gosh, these state constitutions are hugely important. That's what they, men were fighting all about. That's what that, is that issue in ISL. And I want to make, say one final thing on this. I want the audience, our podcast audience, to experience the book. Okay, because we can only do so much in this podcast, but it's a serious podcast based on serious scholarship. It's foreshadowing serious litigation that's happening and, and other things like with the, the ISL case. 
But at the end of the day, audience members, I really want you to experience the, the books. And we talked about the Bill of Rights book and how if you would read that in 1998, oh, you were going to be able to understand free exercise issues 25 years later. You read this book now, you're going to see the future in all sorts of ways that I can't even um, specify just because who knows what issues will arise. But I do believe that the stuff in this book will help you think that through. It'll give you true north. And one thing that we'd like to do, Andy, um, in connection with this podcast, is a special offer to our um, podcast audience. If you acquire the book any way you like, you buy it at a local bookstore, you get it on Amazon, whatever, email Andy at andyatakilamar.com and uh, send us your mailing address and any inscription that you'd like and we're going to send you, Andy and I, a, a book plate from America's Constitution. We'll, we'll mail it to you with whatever inscription you like, and you can paste it into the book. And that's a special offer only for the America's Constitution audience. If you have any trouble with uh, accessing the email, Andy at AkilaMar.com, I don't think you'll have any problem. But if you do, um, you can just go on the website, um, which is AkilaMar.com slash podcast hyphen two, or just go anywhere on akilmar.com and click on the America's Constitution button. That'll take you to the podcast page. And on that page, there's a, a place to leave a question for Professor Amar. And you can just type into the question, I read the book, you know, or something like that, um, with your information. And that will, that'll get to us uh, as well. So that's another way of getting it. And it's it's private. Your, you know, your address won't be shared with everyone else that way. No one will see it other than, than myself. Right, but give us your mailing address because we're going to mail you three-dimensionally an inscribed and a nice Amarcus Constitution book plate. Great. And of course, in this discussion, uh, Akil, you keep mentioning ISL. I just want to remind our listeners that ISL stands for Independent State Legislatures and that we had three podcasts on that called The Real Steel um, and uh, part one, part two, part three. And the, uh, it's an important concept in connection with uh, the ISL case that's going to be coming before the Supreme Court, that state legislatures uh, were in existence prior to the federal constitution, that they were important in various ways that you bring, just, just mentioned and bring forth in greater detail in the book. This is important to why ISL theory or you know, arguments are poppycock. I think that this really um, can be thought of as a, as a several podcast um, series on yeah. free exercise questions. Yeah, this, the, uh, this, 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 this Mitchell versus Helm stuff just perfectly tees up Carson. And where I end, you know, and this is 1999, is what the Supreme Court finally said this term in Carson. Now, why did it take it so long? Because Justice O'Connor was the swing vote back in Mitchell versus Helms, and, and she agreed that Meek made no sense and Woolman make no, made no sense, but she actually wasn't a Lincoln person who had one clear principle. And so she fuzzed it up a bit, and the law didn't started to move in the right direction, but it didn't take a decisive turn until she was replaced on the court by Sam Alito. And then once that happened, the court in three steps under John Roberts quickly moved to Akil's, you know, a bottom line. 
uh, and the three steps, because Chief Justice Roberts doesn't like getting to the result in, in, in just one quick move. He doesn't like hairpin turns. These things must be done delicately. That's what he wanted to do with abortion. Uphold the Mississippi law, and then we can talk about Texas later on in Oklahoma, you know, a, a decade from now or something. A, gradually, slowly. But once Justice O'Connor was replaced by Justice Alito, Bam, 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 three cases. Uh, one was, I'm not going to go into the details. One was called Trinity Lutheran. One was called Espinoza, and now Carson. And we're finally in 2022, where Akil said we should be in 1999. So a couple of themes that have run through our podcast over the last weeks and months are that you shouldn't really be surprised by a lot of what happened because um, it's actually, in some cases, either incremental from what the court had already been doing or the handwriting was clearly on the wall um, for, for originalist reasons. Um, that's one theme. And the other is this question of precedent versus originalism. And I thought that those arguments really uh, brought that out very clearly. As you say, this court says, this court says, um, but, but the confusion of, Week, of Meek and Wallman, I think, uh, you know, was, was a strong argument for an originalist approach to this. And those who say, you know, well, you know, we can't reconsider the Constitution in every single case, I think um, they might look at something like this and say, well, here's a case where you do have to reconsider it because not doing that is leading us into a morass, you know, where we, where we don't belong. And let me say one final thing, which is Lemon gets a lot of the blame for this. Now, I actually think the so-called Lemon test was somewhat indeterminate. It could lead to all sorts of things. But Lemon basically, which was repudiated this term, it, it died a quiet death. You will not find the sentence, Lemon is hereby overruled. But the court basically says, we've already kind of stopped talking about Lemon. We're not doing anything. We're just acknowledging pre-existing fact. But Lemon basically is seen, uh, pun intended, as um, sour, as bitter fruit by all sorts of conservatives and originalists, and on this I'm, I'm with them because it's the foundation for, it's the case that um, is prominently mentioned in idiotic um, results like the, 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 the Meek and the Woolman. So it, you could have taken the, the prongs of lemon, which I'm not going to go into in great detail, and come up with more sensible results. It's not that lemon was um, inherently flawed, so much as ambiguous because it didn't focus like a laser beam on the real question, uh, which, say it with me, is equality, 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 or to put differently, neutrality, neutrality, neutrality. Not supplant versus supplement, not entangle this or direct aid versus indirect that. It's the equality principle. Okay, so um, we're wrapping this up, but we're not, we're not yet done with the term. We still have the important uh, West Virginia case, uh, the EPA case, to discuss. Um, now, that's more of a statutory construction case, so we're not going to go into as great a depth on that. But there are important originalist uh, and political arguments in that case that do reflect on some of the themes that we've, uh, in, in the, especially in the dissent, um, that we've been covering. So we are going to discuss that in our next episode. And we're going to wind up, wrap it up by then saying, okay, if the court has 
indeed taken a turn towards originalism, what kind of a methodology might one use to apply this and what kind of results will it lead to and what kind of results would it lead to if you looked back at the big cases of the last, let's say, half century or maybe even longer. So that way I think we'll, we'll kind of put originalism to the test right. and see if the court's movement in that direction is warranted. What would it really mean if we took this seriously across the board? And of course, I've been thinking about this forever. So I think this will be one of our most important episodes. So I hope you tune in. 